Hi, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays. Each week we will interview a history professor with the theme of power and people. Let's get started. everyone. It's 7 a.m. here in the WEGL 91.1 FM uh, radio station in the Melton Student Center. This morning, it's all history to me with myself, Victoria, and Sophia. Today, we're joined by our special guest, Dr. Zach Froelich from the History Department. He's an assistant professor in the History Department and it specializes in food and culture, science and technology studies, 20th century U.S. politics, law, and society, and the history of technology. Dr. Froelich completed his undergraduate Bachelor of Arts in History at the University of Texas at Austin before completing his doctorate in History and Science, Technology, and Society from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He currently serves as an assistant professor in the History Department and specializes in food and culture, science and technology studies, 20th century U.S. politics, law, and society, and the history of technology, just to name a few of his topics. He teaches classes on the interact or interrelation of food and power and technology and civilization. He has also published a book entitled From Label to Table, Regulating Food in America in the Information Age, published by the University of California Press in 2023. And he is, this book is serving as a biography of the food label in addition to having published multiple articles, essays, and chapters that highlight food's connection to politics, culture, health, industrialization, consumerism, and ethics. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Froelich. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yes, we're super excited. So to start things off, how did you get interested in food history? Was there a specific moment that you point to uh, looking back now and say, yeah, that was the starting point? Yes, there definitely was. Um, When I was an undergraduate in my third year, I did study abroad in London at Queen Mary in Westfield. And they put us in flat, uh, flats with other sort of local students. And all of my flatmates were uh, sort of first-generation British, um, so mostly Muslim um, from Middle Eastern countries or South a- Southeast Asia. Um, <clears throat> and so we would live together, and we would have a shared kitchen and, and be cooking. And as a result, I would have conversations with them where they would talk about being Muslim and eating halal um, or during Ramadan, which, which uh, starts today or tomorrow. Um, you know, having to do the fast. And so these sort of daily conversations were really interesting. And one conversation particularly got me hooked on the idea mm-hmm. of thinking about sort of food and culture. And that was where I was talking with, actually it was two conversations, with uh, uh, same conversation with two different friends. And I was asking them, how do they know what they're eating is halal? Because oh, yeah. um, I said, you know, if you lived in a, in a, in a Muslim country, it'd be easy because everyone there presumably mm-hmm. would be invested in it. But, you know, in Britain, not everyone who's making food is, is worried about uh, halal. And one of my friends answered by saying, oh, you know, I investigate the person. I make sure they're, they're doing it right. I read up all I can. I try to get lots of information from them. Um, and so I know to make sure that they're taking this seriously, um, which made sense. And, but the other friend looked at me and kind of smiled and said, you know, if the food they make isn't halal, and it's haram, that's their sin. And had this kind of smile, and it's kind of like, the sin is on them, it's not on me, I'm, you know, I'm trying my best. And that got me really interested in sort of mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, food, things that I'm still doing research on these days, food mm-hmm. and risk, 
um, different strategies people have uh, as consumers trying to think about how they manage risk. In this case, sort of religious risk, right, yeah. of, of sin. Um, and I had a lot of these kinds of conversations where, you know, not just for being Muslim, but also for being British, they had very different ideas of, um, of you know, food than I did. Um, I was also arriving there in the midst of the genetically modified food debates mm-hmm. in Europe, um, and I didn't know anything about it. And so I was curious, how is it, you know, they're very aware of this yeah. and I'm not. Yeah. And those kinds of questions got me interested in food. Very cool. Uh, who were the people that ignited your passion for history? What made you decide to do the intersection of food and history as opposed to just more modern conceptions of food? Yeah. Um, let's see. So my my passion for history really started um, also that year in London. Um, partly it was being an American in Europe where there was just so much history that was visible, and I got really interested in that. Um, but actually, the sort of specific change in career path, I was actually a biochemistry major. Um, and I'm one of those people who, you know, I didn't fail out of biochemistry. I was doing great in it. I loved science, and I was good at it. Um, but I took a class in London to fulfill a requirement for the Physics 1 course, which is basically mechanical mm-hmm. um, or, or me- mechanics. Um, but the way they taught it there at Queen Mary and Westfield was different. They had it, it was called From Newton to Einstein. Oh. And the professor basically did a kind of what we would call an internal history, right? The, sort mm-hmm. of the history according to scientists of the evolution from Newton's uh, calculus mm-hmm. up to Einstein's mm-hmm. theory of relativity, looking at all the different stages in the sort of math, um, but also the ideas. I loved the history much more than I loved the oh, yeah. science. I mean, the science was interesting, but what was really interesting, and there was a moment where he talks about in the 19th century, the math was basically already there for understanding what Einstein would call relativity. Mm-hmm. Um, they, but pretty much the math was there, but they didn't have an explanation of it. And mm-hmm. so they had this theory of ether, this kind of invisible, difficult to measure substance that might mm-hmm. explain electromagnetic waves. Um, and it was kind of a weird idea, and I remember being sort of fascinated by the idea of these scientists sort of with this weird idea. And then along comes Einstein with a very simple, elegant explanation yeah. that kind of lets them move past that er- earlier model. And so I came back uh, to my home institution at University of Texas, and I switched right out of sort of science degree into history degree and did my own kind of history of science. Oh, very cool. Nice. Okay. Uh, would you say that there is a common food history narrative that society has adopted based off what you work you've been doing? Yeah, I, um, yeah, there are a lot of, uh, well, food is an area that has a lot of nostalgia, mm-hmm. a lot of people, mm-hmm. sort of backward-looking ideas of sort of people looking back and thinking, you know, this is our food past. Um, um, often they're thinking of their own childhood and what they miss, but then mm-hmm. that gets sort of extended back in time. Um, so one narrative that I see a lot with food um, that I think is really relevant today is the idea that in the past foods were natural and today it's all processed mm-hmm. and industrial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so <clears throat> it's not that this is not true. There's definitely more food processing happening now. Um, but one of the things I often point out um, in my classes or in my talks is that cooking was invented in prehistory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, slicing, fermenting, um, uh, mixing these kinds of things that are really important, often for taking natural substances and making them edible. Mm-hmm. That's been happening in, since prehistory. Uh, one historian of technology likes to say that, you know, prehistoric food was processed. Oh, yeah. So asking the question when people are talking today about processed foods, what do they mean by processed? What is it that's different in the last sort of 150 years that makes them anxious? 
um, is one of the things I think is important. Um, also, I think people are unaware of how much of their food is actually cooked oh, before yeah. it gets to them. Yeah, that's and, true. And so I, I uh, often when I'm doing sort of histories of industrial food processing, mm -hmm. I'm sort of trying to show how much food gets moved from the kitchen back oh, yeah, into yeah. the factory. Very cool. Um, the other thing about sort of the other sort of myth around food or, or focus around food that I think is important to be careful about is the focus on food origins. Mm. Um, most food history um, is is what we call culinary history is often about sort of rescuing the hidden origin of some popular dish today. When I lived in Spain, it was like paella. Where did paella come from? Um, and that can be really fun and interesting, but I, I would argue that it's um, a kind of misleading way of understanding food yeah. culture uh, because it focuses on the idea of the invention of the dish mm. and giving credit to a culture or a person for mm -hmm. that when a lot of food culture is dynamic, it's hybrid. Uh, we, we use the term creolization from yeah. creole food, like you get this mix of cultures. Um, and the other thing is that it really emphasizes the inventor and mm -hmm. the creative person, usually male, um, uh, instead of focusing on the people who are doing the actual work of maintaining yeah. that food culture, which is often female. Yeah. Um, so there's a kind of gender dimension to it as yeah. well that I think is, is worth being aware of. Very cool, very cool. Very cool. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, broadly speaking, do you, how do you think food relates to power? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think it relates to power. <laughs> no, I, I teach a course called Food and Power, and um, and one of the things I sort of open that course by saying is there's lots of different ways of talking about power. Um, I, I can think of a couple of ways that I think food is really important for understanding how power works. Um, probably the most important important one is that food is a basic necessity and so access to food can be a, a kind of key uh, sort of way of enacting power um, or, or, or enacting sort of the power uh, to sort of prevent people from access to food. So hunger is a kind of uh, one way of which you can think about food and power. Um, and one of the things that people who write about hunger, hunger and study hunger, they often say is that it's, it's not about um, the capacity to feed people. It's normally it's about the entitlement. Mm. Um, and so what kinds of power structures prevent people from having the resources to get food? Um, these are often social justice questions um, yeah. about um, people being disempowered and not having uh, the ability to buy their food or to secure their food. It's not so much a technological one. Mm. Um, the other thing I think that's interesting about food when you're thinking about power is that it's eating and cooking and getting food is such a mundane everyday act. And so it's a great way to think about how power works in subtle uh, everyday ways. Yeah. Um, so provisioning food, growing it, getting it to the uh, to people in supermarkets or in restaurants, um, those require economic structures. Um, and um, it's interesting to think about you know, how small changes in those can have big political and economic consequences. And, and then also how that shapes our sort of individual personal experiences of food, like the moralizations we have about what is good mm -hmm. and bad eating. Definitely, yeah. All super interesting. Are we moving to the ad break or do we have time for one more question in this segment? I think we have time for one more question before okay. the ad break. Let's see. So, hmm. 
we talked a little bit about misconceptions and the common understanding of food's history. Do, is there any misconception that you wish you could correct or that you're hoping your work is striving to correct? Well, uh, we, we, if we talk about my book, I, I will say a lot of what I work on in my, my research is trying to challenge the idea that food choices are an individual's mm-hmm. concern. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways food studies scholars look at that. Um, one of the kind of classic examples is that is what's called commensality, like the idea that we tend to sit down together, eat meals together, mm-hmm. and that shapes the experience of eating. Um, so I think in America, we're very individualistic. We tend to focus on individuals. A lot of our diet culture is, mm. is centered on the individual, sort of disciplining themselves. Yeah. Um, and in my work, I'm trying to get you know people to think more about the kind of social mm. aspects of it, how food is linking us to other people, and that yeah. that restricts our individual choices, but it also mm-hmm. makes food important for that kind of community. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Well, very cool. Very cool. Mm. We're gonna go to a two-minute ad break, but we'll see you shortly afterwards. Welcome back to It's All History to Me here on WEGL 91.1. Sophia and I are joined today by Dr. Frolik and his upcoming book entitled From Label to Table, Regulating Food in America in the Information Age is set to be published from the University of California Press this year. The book traces policy debates concerning the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, uh, describing the emergence of our present information age in food and diet and how powerful government offices inform the public about what they consume. From Label to Table, explores the evolving popular ideas about food, diet, and responsibility for health that informs what goes on the label and who gets to decide that. So what was your inspiration for the book, Dr. Froelich? So the the original idea for the book came out of a graduate seminar paper I, I, was, I did on the Nutrition Facts panel, um, which is what you see if you look on a package. You'll see that kind of black box. Um, and that dates back to the 1990s. Uh, well, one of the things that happening is I having lived in Europe, and then I was living back in the United States for graduate school, uh, I had friends visiting me, and it would be fun. Um, on the break, we were talking about ex- you know, experiences comparing cultures. And um, I this friend was visiting me one day, and they were in my kitchen having breakfast, and they, I don't know if it was a cereal box or what, but they looked at the cereal box, and they looked at the nutrition facts panel, and they turned to me and they're like, Zach, this is so American. <laughs> and, and I knew what they meant. I, when, they, when I looked at it, I kind of smiled. Um, and in the book, I talk about this a little bit, the, the kind of two things in particular that was different for them as a European. Um, one, it seemed very legalistic. Mm. Um, uh, Europeans, Americans are famous for our litigious culture. Like we have lawsuits all the time. Mm. Um, these warning boxes, like yeah. our disclosure culture. Uh, Europeans see this, you know, thing saying, be careful, it's a choking hazard. They mm. find that very odd. Um, <laughs> and... You know, the, it, the Nutrition Facts box looks like that. It looks mm-hmm. like a, something that a, a legal institution put on the, the container. Um, the other was that we're also, and this is less true now because I think there's more scientific dieting in, in Europe, but Americans are really famous for being very scientistic, like mm-hmm. turning everything into kind of a scientific thing. Uh, Europeans often think we don't have our own food culture and so we turn to experts to tell us what to eat. Oh, yeah. In Europe, they, you know, you would know what is a healthy diet because you grew up eating that, and that's mm. what you eat. Mm-hmm. And so I think those two things my friend was kind of commenting on with this got me interested in this question, like where did this thing come from? And so I did this term paper on the nutrition facts label, and in the process of investigating that, I discovered that there was a much longer history for the Food and Drug Administration. In a way, this was like the last chapter in 
a sort of 50-year history mm-hmm. of how nutrition science found its way onto food packaging and also how the FDA started getting involved in in these what are called inf- informational labels. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. What is the specific food policy that you discuss in your book, and how exactly did the, does this policy influence the public's modern opinion on food, diet, and responsibility for health? Yeah, at, at, at the most basic level, when you're writing a history, um, you're basically telling a story of change over time. And so my book can be summed up with a very simple story. Um, in the, from the 30s to the 1960s, the FDA was regulating concerns with the market in terms of uh, fraud and health, safety and these kinds of issues using a system known as standards of identity, where basically for all mass-produced foods, they would kind of set rules about the recipes you could mm-hmm. have. Industry would have a range of choices they could do for something like tomato soup, mm-hmm. but there would be restrictions. Um, and so that standard recipe was how the FDA was trying to respond to popular concerns about the, the mass markets for foods. The turning point is in the 1970s when the FDA decides that this system um, is just too complicated for all the millions of products being made. It just takes too much resources. And so they introduce uh, the Nutrition Information Panel Mm. and they ease up on the food standards and this sort of specific policy story then shows a turn towards our kind of the world we live in today where instead of having standards foods, the, the goal is to inform the consumer of what's in the, f- in the package. Oh, yeah. And so you start to get the beginning of lots more informational labels mm. um, and uh, an opening up of our diet food culture. So you had diet food products before, but now you have this sort of explosion mm. of low-fat, low-cal, um, and vitamin-enriched products. Right, yeah, that totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Going from there, how do you or what do you hope that people will take away from reading your book? Well, like I was saying before the break, um, food labeling is a good example of a policy tool that focuses on the consumer at the point of purchase. Right? Mm-hmm. The idea is you go into a store, you, you look at a food product, you read the label, and then that makes you make a, a personal choice. Um, but food culture doesn't work this way. Right. And so I think this is a good example where people focus in on the individual Mm -hmm. in terms of thinking about food problems when really they should be thinking about the broader context of our food choices. So one of the goals of the book is to get people to realize that um, this policy decision hasn't solved a lot of the problems it was intended to solve. Mm. Um, It has encouraged industries to change our food products to make them look healthier on the label, but it hasn't dealt with issues like um, food deserts, oh, where yeah. it's not about your choice at the store because you don't have access to those choices. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, one of the sort of broad arguments of the book is that con- these consumerist movements in food um, aren't uh, addressing the underlying anxieties that a right. lot of consumers have about healthy, um, tasty, good food. Yeah, very interesting. Cool. Very interesting. So after this book comes out, what is next for you and your research endeavors? Yeah, um, so a project I've been working on a little bit and starting to work on more now that this book is is wrapping up is a history of the rediscovery of the Mediterranean diet. Mm. Um, I lived in Spain for five years, um, and there is a kind of specific connection between my interest in the food labeling in the U.S. and the Mediterranean diet. Uh, In the 1960s, there was a big concern about um, heart disease and its link to, to... to certain kinds of foods. Mm -hmm. And the researchers who promoted 
that concern about what was called the diet heart thesis were also involved in promoting olive oil as a kind of good fat mm. and then later the Mediterranean diet mm. as a sort of good diet that you could have that would reduce your risk of heart disease. Um, so I started looking into that story on the science side. Um, living in Spain, you could really see a kind of lived experience of the Mediterranean diet and it was similar in some ways to what we get in the United States when you hear about the Mediterranean diet, but different. And so this next project is trying to look at how marketing and public health mm -hmm. campaigns around the Mediterranean diet create a kind of different diet than uh, than what people actually eat on the Mediterranean. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I'm interested in that kind of uh, split between mm. the two. That's really cool. And kind of connecting to that, when you say that it's like different, it'll be based off different cultures too, like highlighting well, will it highlight the work of a specific group of people on a specific group of people, if that makes sense, or will it be more of like a global perspective? Good question. It's it's probably, in, in, in history, we talk about sort of there are, are world histories and global histories, and then there are transnational histories. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be more of a transnational history. The researchers who were interested in, in the Mediterranean diet, um, they were epidemiologists. Mm -hmm. They were doing a lot of... Uh, gathering population level data in different countries around the world. In fact, the specific study I'm looking at is called the seven country study. So they looked at seven different countries. Mm. Um, and what I'm interested in is how they create these kinds of networks of, oh, yeah. of as researchers. Mm -hmm. And then in each country, the people they collaborate with become proponents mm, in their yeah. own country. They make ties to mm -hmm. industry. And so you can see a kind of transnational movement develop out of their scientific research that becomes part of the promotion of this oh, diet yeah. commercially. Very cool. Um, going off of your, the research, what was the research process like to uncover the stories of food policy that your work focuses on? For the, for the nutrition label project, uh, I had a kind of fortuitous, lucky encounter of archive. Um, when I was in grad school, I wanted to. Do, I started getting interested in the FDA, um, and so I audited a class in Harvard's law school taught mm -hmm. by Peter Barton Hutt, um, who was a very important food lawyer. He worked in a law firm in D.C. Um, and had published books, sort of case books for law students on mm. food law. Um, and when I met with him individually and I told him, by the way, I'm interested in this project on nutrition labeling, he said, oh, yeah, well, I was the one who introduced that. Um, and this is a little bit, anytime you interview people and they, they, they self-aggrandize, you should be cautious. <laughs> but it turned out that he worked in the FDA in the 1970s, mm -hmm. and, um, and he was one of the people important for introducing nutrition labeling. Um, but more important for me, he, at his law firm, had created this huge archive because he just collected everything oh, since yeah. in his, like, 50 years of working there. Mm. And he had the, all the resources of this law firm to sort of archive it and collect it. And so he's like, come over. Oh, yeah, you want to check my archive. It's better than the FDA's. You should come <laughs> over to uh, come over to my law firm and you can do this. So I, I for a summer, I spent a summer in oh, there, wow. the, the law firm's archive, and it was wonderful. And so mm. I was very spoiled in that sense. Um, the other side of it, and when we do in science studies, scientists leave a paper trail. Mm, in this yeah. sense, they're nice as historical characters to study um, because they publish articles so you can trace who they cite and talk about in their articles. Mm. Um, they're part of committees in the government, um, and so you can look at the committee reports and think about how do they come to consensus, who was on the committee. Mm -hmm. So I did a kind of study of important diet scientists who were, in, who were 
called by the Food and Drug Administration mm. to work on that. I plan to do a similar thing with the Mediterranean diet through this uh, seven country study, sort of look at the different actors, follow their networks, and then see what kinds of materials um, are available in local universities and such. Very cool. Do you think that there's any sort of unique challenges that you face with doing history from like a science perspective versus the opposite, which I guess would be like a more humanitarian like view of history? Yeah, there's a, a classic thing we talk about in, in science studies. So going back to this issue of power, and this is not about food and power, but mm -hmm. in, in terms of power uh, and who you study, um, people who study scientists and engineers, um, anthropologists talk about call, what they call studying up. Mm. Um, because it's well known that in terms of prestige and vocation, engineers and scientists are really high up in the right. university. Anthropologists, historians are mm. not as high up. Um, and so historians of science and technology, when we're reading up on these people and we're often challenging the values and the ideas they have, we have this sort of extra challenge of how do you, from your humble position as a historian, mm. challenge someone who's in this more prestigious oh, field? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so like when I interview scientists or when mm -hmm. I interview this food lawyer who's also a very, he's, you know, he, he's on Pennsylvania Avenue. His oh. law firm is mm -hmm. one of the big law firms not, not far from the White House. Yeah. Well. Um, you know, he's a very powerful man. Mm -hmm. um, he's argued before the Supreme Court. Um, you know, you're, you know, you have to figure out how do you get them off script? How do you oh, sort yeah. of push back on what they're saying um, without, you know, bringing that sort of, they're, they're bringing them down on you or right. even just simply refusing to talk. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, very cool. Very cool. We're going to go to a two-minute ad break, but we'll see you shortly after the break. Good morning, and welcome back to It's All History to Me, WEGL 91.1's History Radio Hour here at Auburn University. We're on air with Dr. Froelich from the Auburn University History Department, and we're here now to discuss the connection to his experiences at Auburn University. All right, so I had the opportunity to take your class last fall, and I was definitely really amazed by the number of practical applications your historical focus has to the work that's being done within the agricultural sector of Auburn University. We got to tour the vertical gardens and the meat lab facilities here at Auburn, and that was super, super neat experience. Uh, could you talk a little bit on the connections you have made within Auburn's College of Agriculture and the ways that they may have influenced your work or you may have influenced theirs? Yeah. So when I got hired here, I have to admit it was my first time. So I've, I've done history of food and agriculture, you know, since uh, since graduate school. Mm -hmm. um, and I, But I've always been at uh, universities that have no real connection to that. So oh, yeah. Massachusetts Institute of Technology is not a particularly... Mm -hmm. Uh, food or ag, ag school kind of right. place and when I was abroad uh, also. So I was excited about finally coming to university um, with a strong uh, legacy in that kind of work. Mm. Um, obviously, Auburn University is a land-grant university. Right. It's sort of built into the DNA of this school. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and we've moved away from that. We still have a very strong College of Agriculture, but now we're, we do more engineering mm. uh, as a kind of core part of it. Um, but there's still a strong extension aspect to the school. So uh, teaching a food class is an opportunity, um, more than other subjects, you have readily available all kinds of activities you can do in the mm -hmm. community. And so that's something I've always done. But here, Auburn, it was, it's been really fun having an extra level of engagement yeah. where you have people doing really cool research. Um, you mentioned uh, Daniel Wells' uh, sort of teaching tool of the vertical container gardens yeah. um, next to the old rotation. Um, 
uh, Barney uh, Wilborn, uh, the Meat Lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, it's interesting because he's very much the Meat Lab is very invested in sort of industrial scale farming yeah. of, of of animal mm-hmm. um, husbandry, and so you know getting that perspective is really great for students when we do our week on meat and modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, something I've done elsewhere, but it's really easy to do. You know, you have campus dining. Mm-hmm. Someone has to make decisions on that. Um, so I always have a week where students uh, talk about um, the decisions for campus dining. I call it captive mm-hmm. audiences. Oh, yeah. Someone's making that choice for you. Mm-hmm. And on campus, Glenn Luffridge is very approachable. He's a great guy. Um, and he's always happy to sort of interact with students. So it's just been nice to sort of connect mm-hmm. up with people in the community. Um, I'd say the way it's a, it sort of helped me as mm-hmm. a food, as a researcher looking at food, uh, they enrich my sense of the issues, like mm, I can yeah. visualize laboratories where they're doing work mm-hmm. on meat production. Um, also, historians work with characters. We create characters right. in our stories, yeah. um, and it's often easy to oversimplify those characters mm-hmm. um, since you're only accessing them through these kind of documents. Mm-hmm. I think working with people today who work on these issues, um, scientists who do diet research, mm-hmm. forces me to be more... Uh, humble and yeah. careful about how I, I create those characters in my own yeah. stories. And I know some people who do history of nutrition are very negative about nutrition mm-hmm. scientists because they feel like they're reductionists. They're making everything about nutrition. Mm-hmm. And that's often unfair. The, yeah. the, these people often know that it's more complicated. Right. So I think working with them here on campus has helped me uh, with that. Yeah, really neat. Okay, cool. Very neat. Was the College of Agriculture or Auburn's extension work an element of Auburn University that attracted you to work here, or has your opinion on it changed since working here? Uh, so, yeah, it was definitely something that attracted me to, to Auburn. Um, it was interesting. I think um, there is a I, – I don't want this to be controversial, but I, I think that the college is struggling with its identity today, the College of Agriculture, um, and you can see this in the faculty. On my first year here – uh, a guy who was in the meat lab saw that I taught a course, Food and Power, and said, oh, come give a talk to us on meat and power. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll do this. Um, and when it got closer to the date of my, my, my lecture there, I added a subtitle, um, you know, which was basically something along the lines of why, why people are, are, more, are anxious about their meat. Mm-hmm. And he saw this and he got really nervous because they're very pro-industrial meat production. Mm-hmm. Um, they call it harvesting, not slaughtering, right. kind of language to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was sort of worried that I was going to come in and just kind of rant about why meat people are bad. Um, and instead, I gave the talk that I, I, I usually give, which is saying there are changes in our meat production that are hiding how meat gets made from animals. Mm-hmm. And that is generating an anxiety. And yeah. the industry does this for good reasons, but it also faces the consequence of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I said it in a way that I think gave them a space to address it. And so in the Q&A, it was clear that some of the faculty were really excited. They finally had a space to talk about that. Yeah. Um, and I think the college is struggling with um, a new kind of agriculture that's coming out, which is trying to address consumers' new concerns about animal welfare, the mm-hmm. environment, sustainability, these kinds of questions. But an older tradition that is invested in um, big agriculture and is anxious about the kind of hit that takes on the branding of it. Oh, yeah, definitely. That definitely makes sense. Is there anything that you learned from your collaboration with Auburn's Agriculture College that you have applied to your research or that changed your perspective on the field? You talked about it a little bit, but. Yeah. 
Uh, well, like I said, I, it helps humanize uh, people in these different fields mm-hmm. in a way that I think is important for us as historians. Um, it, it's been really great in terms of teaching um, mm-hmm. because I think um, I'm a big believer that with students, we, we get these ideas from how things work in the books mm-hmm. and they're often very neat and clean. And then you take them into the field, you take them out to one of these places um, and you hear the person talking and they, and you suddenly this looks a lot more messy. You can yeah. see the process that they're kind of cleaning up mm-hmm. their field site. Definitely. In, yeah. In their publication. <laughs> um, and you can see them as a whole person. Mm-hmm. I know it, undergrads, I, I grew up with parents who are academics. And mm-hmm. so I knew that academics were people. Right. I think undergraduates <laughs> coming to the university, they see the professors and we look so polished and, and, and we know what we're doing mm-hmm. and they forget that we are human beings. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and since my class is focused on science and engineering, having those interviews helps the students sort of see them as like a human being who has to grapple mm-hmm. with like their own profession. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Yes. Why do you think it's important to study the history of food as it, as it is related to culture, health, industrial, industrialization, consumerism, and ethics? Good question. Uh, so, so I think the real power of history is its ability to challenge our our ideas about the past. Um, you know, when, remembering takes effort, right? And so in a way, our profession is dedicated to remembering things, um, and society often deliberately forgets certain things. Um, and in the context of food, for example, uh, as I was saying earlier, there's a lot of romantic, nostalgic ideas about food and food culture, um, also about sort of how that relates to health and the environment. You know, we used to live in, people imagined that we lived in these agrarian societies mm-hmm. where you had naturally healthy meals because everything was organic without it being a label, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but when you go back and you start looking at the history of this, you can very quickly show it was not like that. Oh, yeah. um, people had health problems before. Mm-hmm. Um, farm production was extractive before. It had um, created lots of problems. Um, and so you can use that past to kind of challenge our present day ideas about that. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Um, let's see. Hmm. Should we go into trivia now or wait until our final segment? I think we can go into the trivia now. Okay. Let's see. So we have two trivia questions for you. The first one is, do you know what was the first food to be genetically modified? Huh. Uh, well, let's see. When I teach this, mm-hmm. uh, I f- point out that the first food derived from genetic modification was uh, a, a milk, the bovine somatotrophin milk. Now, this is mm-hmm. not technically genetically modified. It's a uh, growth hormone that cows naturally produced that through genetic engineering, they put into a bacteria to kind of produce it like mm-hmm. the way we produce alcohol. The bacteria is like oh, a factory yeah. for producing it. And then they use that with animals, and some of that ends up in the milk. And so that was the mm-hmm. first food that was a policy debate about right. it. Um, the first sort of whole entire food that was itself genetically modified um, was the was probably the flavor saver tomato. That yeah, was, that was the one that um, Calgene, uh, a mm-hmm. biotech firm, was like pr- pushing the FDA, saying we're gonna. Uh, market this and get consumers excited about that. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's the exact answer that I found and remember from your class too is the flavor saver tomato. Which it's, turned out to be a disaster, not yeah. because of the genetic modification, but because they had no idea how to market 
mm-hmm. their product. Right, yeah, definitely. And it was interesting to see how, like, the modifications they made were meant to try and make the product more, um, I guess, transportable and, like, marketable to people, but it ended up kind of doing the opposite because it created a different fear or different concern um, than the one they were trying to fix, which I think was, like, the packaging of them and uh, making sure they were durable enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. they had an anti-sense gene that slowed ripening, Mm -hmm. and so the idea Mm -hmm. was it would stay firm and, and... for longer. Right, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Okay, do you want to do the second trivia question? I can. What is the most popular food in the world? <laughs> these things, these kinds of questions are tricky because uh, <laughs> we come from our kind of American idea of global mm. food, and so my first thought immediately is just a numbers game. Okay, you got India and China. What would be the foods that would be popular oh, in India yeah. and China? Um, I would, well, it also depends on what you mean by food. Um, like I would, my first thought would be rice just because when I lived in Korea, rice, they have it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. And, um, I know in East Asia, it's a big thing. So I'm going to say rice. Yeah. Okay. So this was interesting because I wanted to ask this question to see what you would say. And I was thinking the similar thing. So when I was looking on the internet, of course, it's with the Western filter, I'm sure. So the answer that I found was pizza, which is interesting because I guess like the way that the website I found, which is Uh tasteatlas.com. So it talks about, um, well, there seems to be no universally accepted answer, according to the website and a few other sources that also were hinting at pizza. Uh, This seems to be the most popular food in the world. and it connects to like the history of it in the invention of the pizza changes depending on how you define it. Uh-huh. If you think of pizza as an oven-baked flatbread, then the website says its origins lie in the ancient Middle East. If pizza must have toppings, its origins date back to the ancient <laughs> Romans and Greeks yeah. who baked flatbreads and topped them with available local spices and olive oil. Yeah. And then, But the pizza we know today, made with tomato sauce, cheese, and numerous toppings, um, according to this website, originated in Italy, but I know that there is still controversy over if that's like factual or not. It says here that it became popular in Naples in the 18th century as a cheap nourishing food that was consumed mainly by peasants and that the modern pizza as we know it today evolved from early Napoleon flatbreads topped with lard, salt, and garlic. So interesting. I mean, this is fun because first of all, what do you mean by food? In this case, it right. sounds like a dish. And mm-hmm. as a dish, I could see like then rice falls out. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. Also, like pizza is something as a great example of what I was talking about earlier in terms of invention. Right? Mm-hmm. Italians feel like they own what a pizza is, but what Americans eat when they eat pizza. And then when I lived in Korea, what Koreans oh, eat for yeah. pizza um, is just totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're. We, every every culture has its sort of default pizza. I think mm-hmm. in the U.S. that's like a pepperoni pizza would okay, be like a yeah. kind of default pizza. Yeah. And in Spain, it's not a it's not a pepperoni pizza. In Korea, it's um, it's this pizza that has mayonnaise on it. Oh, um, interesting. And, and obviously, very different Italian pizza. Mm-hmm. What you were describing in terms of what what counts as a pizza reminds me of this really funny meme, which was <laughs> like the topography of sandwiches Ah. and it was basically like this argument that if you have a flat surface and something Mm -hmm. on top it's a pizza if you have uh sort of uh two pieces two flatbreads Mm -hmm. and something placed in between it's a sandwich if you have Mm -hmm. a flatbread open in an angle like a triangle it's Mm -hmm. a taco or Ah, a hot dog yeah it was like this kind of mathematical topography (laughs) of of dishes so like what do you mean by a pizza can change who you give credit to yeah yeah so a good trivia question if nothing else it started a conversation so that's good yay 
All right. That's very inter- that's really interesting. Um, we're gonna go to an ad break. We will see you shortly after the ad break to do our wrap up thoughts. Hello and welcome back to It's All History to Me, here live at Weagle ninety one point one FM at seven a.m. on Wednesdays. If you're just joining us, we're here with Dr. Froelich and Vic- uh, Victoria and I are here are joined by Dr. Froelich, and we're doing our wrap up thoughts as we end this week's episode. So to start off our wrap-up thoughts, we want to ask you, why is it important that we study history and what advice do you have for current and future students of history? Yeah, important question. So, so when I was in grad school at MIT, MIT is a science engineering school, and I would regularly run into people and they'd say, oh, what are you doing here at MIT? And I'd say, I'm, in the histor- I'm, a, I'm a historian. And they would immediately say, you know, we have historians at MIT because... <laughs> MIT is the future, right? They, mm-hmm. They're very future-oriented, and so it was surprising them that they would be dedicating resources to having historians. And they would, next question to ask is, like, why, do, why does MIT have a history department? Um, and, and I think there are two reasons why history is important, even in a future-oriented institution mm-hmm. like MIT. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I think this is just more generally true. Um, one is uh, the kind of classic explanation that past, the past is prologue. Um, if you really want to understand what's going on today, you always need to have some sense of how we got here, um, how these were, these problems started, um, and that immediately takes you back into the past. And so even at MIT, I would say, hey, people want background. You know, mm-hmm. in any scientific paper or any mm-hmm. policy paper, they want a background section. And, right. and for that, um, or I would talk about institutional memory mm. because uh, with every generation, people didn't live the events, they tend to forget it, and they can sort of, fall into the same problems if they're not aware of that. Um, and so I think that's one important reason why history is, is important. Um, the other reason I think it's important goes in the opposite direction. So that's that focus on history is what historians would call presentism. And a lot of historians would get upset about that because they say, no, you have to take the history mm-hmm. on its own terms. Hmm. But even that can be a really practically useful thing in the present. I remember teaching scientists and engineers who about these pasts scientists and engineers and teaching them that it was really messy and that the scientists and engineers didn't know what was going on um, was useful to them because Mm -hmm. in their reality it's really messy and they don't always know what's going on they don't know they're on the verge of inventing the most important thing Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. Um, and so I often told my students that the past is like study abroad people do things differently there Um, you're going to discover that they have different values Mm -hmm. um, different assumptions and just like you go and study abroad and the different values and assumptions force you to reflect on what are your own, when I take students into the past, I, I try to show them don't look at the past as being like today. Try to really understand how it's different. Mm. Take it on its own terms. And then in the process, it helps you then say, wow, they thought this way in the 19th century. Why don't we think that way yeah, today? Yeah. And that helps you enrich your understanding of, of the present. Oh, that's a cool way to think about it. And I like how there's the two different sides of it of thinking of the past as like a avenue for the future, but then also something in its own right that needs to be preserved and remembered to also connect to the future again. Very cool. Uh, any other questions? I don't think so. Okay. 
Well, thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Froelich. We, of course, like to thank you for your time coming, waking up bright and early to come join us. It's been fun. Yay. Well, thank you. Yes. And also the history department as a whole and our faculty advisor, Dr. Schultz, giving them a big thank you. The College of Liberal Arts, we'd also like to thank uh, especially Dean Dr. Israel, who's the assistant dean for academic affairs, who gave us the go-ahead for the history club overall, and just like to give a big thank you to him. Of course, our researchers that made today's conversation possible, and Weagle for having us on. And of course, we have to thank our listeners. Thank you for uh, tuning in live or hopefully on our podcast station, which should be out soon. All right. Well, thank you. And we'll see you again next week at 7 a.m. Yay. Thank you. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday at 7 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.